welcome back to Lots of Planets Have a North, a Northern Doctor Who podcast. I'm Kieran. I'm Bethan. I'm Jacob. And today we are going to be talking about series one, which in many ways is the episode we were born to do as a podcast, because obviously it's where our name comes from. It's, mm, I suppose, implicitly the most Northern Doctor Who series. No, well, actually, no. No, you know what? Series 11 has surpassed it in that regard. Series Mm. 11 has Mm. a Northern Doctor and actually partly takes place in the North. But yeah, despite that, it is still where our name comes from. Uh, And I think it's uh, it's one that we have a lot of affection for, Um, which is probably partly why I referred to it quite a lot in our previous episodes on Season 7. Because like that season, this is one that is a huge landmark kind of self-evidently in this case, in the history of Doctor Who. It's a big, big change. The show hadn't been on the air for 16 years, uh, unless you get the TV movie. It hadn't been kind of regularly on the air, shall we say, during which time it had been sustained by novels and by Big Finish. So naturally enough, TV changes over the course of 16 years, massively so, in fact, uh, to the point that this is in many ways unrecognisable as the same show uh, as survival with Chris Fenric. Obviously in terms of the length of the episodes, we've got 45 minute episodes, um, which I think, I've never heard anyone talk about this actually, about the length of the episodes, but I've always assumed it's modelled on American prestige television where like, certainly at that point, things uh, episodes of things tended to be about 40 minutes. Uh, so you think of something like Buffy, which is like a huge influence on certainly on the Davies era of Doctor Who. Those episodes are like 40, 42 minutes. And so I assume it's partly dictated by that and partly obviously by kind of BBC scheduling where things are very regularly timed. And obviously that means a whole different kind of pacing and that kind of thing, which we'll get into as we look at the episodes themselves. It's also got, probably most noticeably, a new budget. A very, very different budget. (laughs) This is the point where Doctor Who kind of begins its move from uh, kind of a show that maybe people think more fondly of than they kind of think of as a sort of big flagship show to a cornerstone of the BBC in many ways um, in terms of its of its the strength of its advertising and as, as a brand and that kind of thing, which is something we'll, we'll get into, I think, over the course of new series episodes, particularly in some of the later ones. It's going to be interesting to think about. I suppose another aspect of how TV changes in those 16 years and another way in which the new Doctor Who imports stuff from from other TV and particularly from American TV is the notion of a season uh, as a kind of defined arc. We talked a bit about the idea that the third Doctor might have an arc in season seven, but that was us, as I kind of said at the time, that was us as people in 2019 trying to anachronistically graft something onto some 1970 television. Whereas this is very consciously and very obviously made as a season of television that has a distinct beginning and a distinct ending and that has an arc in between those. It flags that up, in fact. The arc, as it were, is the season arc is contained within two words that keep recurring, Bad Wolf. Like, Davies is really not subtle about this kind of thing. Or, in fact, a lot of things, as we'll discover. And so that's something that's very new for Doctor Who, 
the season finale in particular, which I think we see really grow in just about every respect over the next few years as well. The things you've seen. The darkness. The big bad wolf. <laughs> and I suppose another aspect of how the, the BBC has changed and how te British television has changed in general is that this is a series far, far more than any of the classic series in which a kind of regional identity starts to make itself felt. Um, which obviously comes from the showrunner himself, Russell T. Davies, being Welsh. And hence, we get Cardiff playing a kind of starring role in this series. And, of course, then there's uh, the Doctor himself, our beloved Chris, whose accent is, in fact, flagged up in the very first episode. Which, again, is where we get our name from. So, I think we should pivot from that to talking about Dear Chris. Who, again, I think it's fair to say, is a doctor that we think very fondly of, the three of us. Would that be fair? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> definitely. I like how both talking about Pertwee and Eccleston has opened up with, like, you like him, don't you? And we're just like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, it's accurate. Yeah. Um, I think that he did a really good job at, like, relaunching the series. Because I feel like, looking back now, I think it... It's difficult in a way not to kind of take for granted the fact that the show was brought back and went on to be a mm. really big success. Mm. But at the time, obviously, there was no guarantee that it was going to be anything more than like maybe a slightly embarrassing attempt to bring a sort of relic of British culture back. Mm. Could have been a flop. Could have been a massive flop. Mm. Mm. And I mean, now it has been sort of nearly as long between 2005 and the present day as yeah. it was then since the classic series actually finished yeah. so i think that it's kind of hard to think about what it was like before that time but i think that christopher eccleston's portrayal of the doctor is one of the sort of huge ingredients in what makes the show work and what made it a success mm. um i mean there's lots of other really commendable stuff mm. that they do that i think contributes but i feel like he does a really good job of sort of bringing something new enough to the character that it feels worth continuing to do Doctor Who whilst also still having that difficult to pin down Doctor-ish feeling. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think he also does a really good job of establishing what his incarnation and what his character is going to be like very quickly and very mm. economically. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, I think, you know what he's going to be like pretty much from that first little segment with him and Rose where he grabs a hand and then to the point where he runs off with the bomb like pretty much just in those few minutes you kind of know exactly what he's like you, you get the point where she talks about the chief electrician and he just tells her he's dead mm. really really bluntly so the darkness is there straight away the kind of humour is there when he runs off with the bomb and says, go home and have your beans on toast. They're made of plastic, living plastic creatures. And they're being controlled by a relay device in the room, which would be a great big problem if I didn't have this. So, I'm gonna go upstairs and blow it up. And I might well die in the process, but don't worry about me, no. You go on, go on, go and have your lovely beans on toast. Don't tell anyone about this, because if you do, you'll get them killed. I'm the doctor, by the way, what's your name? Rose. Nice to meet you, Rose. Run for your life! All, all of that's in there straight away. And I think, yeah, I think like you were saying, it's good that 
there's obviously continuity with the character, but at the same time, like he's producing something that's new. And in particular, I think, like, again, this is something that's already been there, but I think he plays with the darkness of the character more, which makes sense within the overall trajectory of the plot because we have this big gap where the time war supposedly happened and hmm. he's damaged and traumatised, I suppose. Yeah, I think there's kind of... There's a strange sort of continuity with Eccleston. A, 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 a kind of a cross between continuity and newness, as it were, which uh, is almost a microcosm of what the show is going for at this point. With the, the balance, I, I think, tipped slightly towards newness. Um, for all that the people working on the show as we'll get to, are all massive fans, and the writers in particular are people who've been writing for Doctor Who for quite a while. There's a sense of really wanting to bring something fresh, and I think Eccleston sums that up perfectly. In it's, I mean, this has been said many times, but it's right there in his design. You know, given that the last visual memories people will have of Doctor Who, uh, assuming they're not thinking of the TV movie, which they probably aren't, um, would be the, the infamously colourful sort of John Nathan Turner designs... And John Nathan Turner didn't actually do the designs, but you know what I mean, of um, the Sixth and Seventh Doctors in particular, to have your Doctor dressed basically in not quite black, but certainly in dark colours, very muted colours, uh, and also an outfit that very pointedly doesn't draw attention to itself at all, uh, is a very, very deliberate choice. Uh, there's also class connotations in that uh, choice of dress as well, which is something that I think we can pick up on as we go through as well. Because yeah, I think this is a much, much more class-conscious series than we've ever seen before in Doctor Who. Mm. In many ways. And most obviously in both the Doctor and the Companion. I'm a Time Lord. I'm the last of the Time Lords. They're all gone. I'm the only survivor. I'm left travelling on my own because there's no one else. There's me. This is a series, I think, that really, really wants to establish its companion as an iconic presence in her own right, which is why the first episode is named after her. Because the Doctor immediately comes with so much baggage, so much kind of legendary status. The show works very, very hard to elevate Rose to the point where she can sort of share a screen with this character without the relationship feeling unbalanced. Not that uh, there isn't like a kind of power dynamics going on in that relationship, because there obviously are. But I think the show wants to at least be aware of that uh, and wants to kind of tip the scales a bit in her favour as much as possible. To the point that, there again, in quite an obvious arc, it ends with her becoming basically the most powerful thing in the universe, briefly. So, I mean, what do we think of Rose more generally, actually? It's time to do the boring answer. I like Rose a lot. <laughs> She's good. I mean, I think that Billy Piper does a really good job of playing Rose. I think Rose is really sweet. I think that she does a good job of getting across Rose's sort of normalness, in like, particularly in the first episode where we see the kind of tedium of her everyday routine. Mm-hmm. But then also she's clearly got like some sort of special like spark about her that like is what makes her not necessarily like better than other people, but like different from from other characters. And I think that, yeah, I think is I'd like sort of 
forgotten how young Rose is because mm, yeah. it's been a while since I watched the series. I think probably the last time I watched these episodes in any kind of sustained way, I would have been younger than Rose is. And now I'm kind of like, oh God, she's only a baby. <laughs> Especially when people keep like assuming that her and the doctor are a couple, even in mm. contexts where like the time period or whatever, like mm. wouldn't necessarily lead them to think that like in the future, I don't think there's any real reason why people would assume that, but we still get that in the end of the world. I feel like that's one thing that I don't like about this series, the fact that they do that a lot. She's only a baby, like, come on. <laughs> yeah, I think part of that is that it's consciously playing with the the notion of there being romance between uh, the Doctor and the Companion, which is something that the, the show has kind of mostly avoided in the past, except for Romana too, who was like, well, you know. Also the TV <laughs> Not officially yeah, true, romance. True. Yeah. yeah. The well, TV movies where it really, where the romance true. really yeah. starts. The um, appeal of the Doctor and Romano too is that like, <laughs> we all know and like, everyone knows, but they don't like, they don't gain to it. But like, you can read between the lines and know that like, they were dating, having a child Adric was too much for them at that time and it made things difficult and then Romana has, it's difficult. <laughs> That's exactly what happens. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Jacob, I know you have opinions on Rose. I, I do have opinions on Rose. <laughs> yeah, I, I like the fact, like you were saying, this is a very Clash Conscious series, uh, and a lot of the class consciousness does come through the fact that Rose's character from a council estate, her family's from a council estate, yeah. and I think that's a good thing. Personally, I've never been a massive fan of Rose. I find the character, not not so much in this series, but particularly later on when she ends up with Tenant's Doctor, I find mm. her far too over the top at times. But I think that's also symptomatic of Russell T Davies' whole era if there's one way i'm going to define it is it lacks subtlety um (laughs) and that's my like um, i'm not saying it's all dreadful you know i I like lots of aspects of it but yeah uh i have a real problem with that but yeah i think where rose comes from and the class consciousness is a good thing i think it's also like we're saying again this idea of newness and continuity there is a sense of continuity in that Ace comes from a very similar background yeah. uh, in on an estate in London in Perivale. And I think when you watch something like Survival and then you watch Rose, whilst it's very, very different, uh, and I think I think Rose looks a lot kind of slicker because of because of the budget and all sorts of other reasons. Um, I thought you meant the character from No, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> um, what I think um whilst that's the case, there's also you know, a clear a clear sense of continuity in set both the setting and the character and where the character's from. I feel like maybe two thousand and five was slightly before the whole like Chav phenomenon and the hatred thereof kicked in. But certainly by the time it's series two, we get Lady Cassandra in Rose's body saying, Oh my god, I'm a Chav And mm. so I feel like there was a, a lot of sort of accepted vitriol towards people from that from the same kind of background that Rose has mm-hmm. and even like maybe dress and look the way that she does. And so I like the fact that the show just sort of unapologetically went with 
her as a lead mm. character and her, you know, family and mm. um, various people associated with her because, like, it wasn't necessarily the way that people were ordinarily thinking about girls from her, teenagers from her background at the time. And I kind of like the fact that, you know, they sort of take some of the tropes of that image and just make lovely Rose and mm. show that she can be show that she's like heroic and has all these great qualities and so does everybody like in her kind of network because we also get with Rose Jackie and Mickey and then like mm. brief glimpses of other people mm. in their lives and I just mm. feel like there's a recognition of humanity and potential that was perhaps not the norm in the culture at the time. I guess one of the issues I have with it is, I mean, the example you brought up was is an interesting one. In New Earth, when Cassandra takes over a body and, like you say, you know, says, oh my God, I'm a champ. As someone from a working class background, the issue that I have with it is that whilst it's good that there's, you know, some kind of inclusion uh, in terms of the fact that they put in a character from this background, a very flippant use of that word in that mm. scene to me just reinforces the whole usage of it because very frequently when I've had to have debates about the use of this word, all anyone ever says is, oh, it doesn't mean that, it doesn't have any class connotation. Mm. And I think I think the problem that I have with the Russell T Davies era in that particular sense is that it's almost like just this virtue signalling inclusion without any attempt to drill down into the material reality of what's actually happening. And I think using that word in that kind of flippant way in that scene, it's, it's just, I think it's just kind of reinforcing the idea that it doesn't have any kind of class connotation, and really it does. I mean, I guess I hadn't really thought about as well the fact that it's kind of weird that that word is implied to have survived until the year whatever yeah which kind of invests it maybe with a an idea of a merit that it doesn't have like as a distinction Mm. but then Mm. i do think that like i have issues with the way they portray cassandra as well which we can get into in a bit but she is like or has been fancy so i think that Mm. there is a kind of difference between her and rose in that way but then there are also distinctions drawn between them that i'm like not comfortable with so I don't know I mean I wasn't nece- I'm not I wouldn't necessarily say that the use of the word in that episode is like a great stride for humanity mm-hmm. I guess what I was trying to sort of get at is that like they use some of those tropes but not in like a way where we're supposed to laugh at the characters in a mean way which I think is the way that they were used on shows like Little Britain which were like Mm, roughly contemporary Mm. so I do think that it's kind of nice in a way that to have characters from these kinds of places slash backgrounds at least like as leads and I I just think I think my main concern is that I worry about it almost feels like inclusion for the sake of saying, oh, look, we've included someone from this background. Which, fortunately, then... we've gotten completely away from in Doctor Who now. <laughs> um... <laughs> <sighs> but, um... but Don't worry, guys. Yaz is going to do something. I can just feel it. <laughs> I think, I think it's, it's becoming, like, contractually obliged that every episode has to have a dig yeah. at Chris Chibnall. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> anyway, sorry, go on. Um, but, yeah, like, you know, this... 
yeah, inclusion to say, oh, look, we've included this person. But then, and I do understand that it's a science fiction show and there's somewhat of a limit to this, but I can't think of many times when, when it's ever really addressed that they might be living in poverty. Mm. Um, mm. Like, it, like it, there's never any even small attempt to address it. And I'm not saying that it has to do that. I just think that if we're talking about inclusion, then I think maybe it should have gone further in that sense. But I don't know. Maybe I'm assessing that from from now rather than thinking about in the contemporary. I think that's fair because I think that like in survival, for example, they do kind of show that the neighbourhood is really mm. like run down and mm. people are kind of only just sort of getting by in Ace's town. So I think that there's even a I think I think you're mm. right, I think that there's even like a sort of precedent in the show for exploring those kinds of things and I do think that like maybe in Father's Day a bit when like yeah. Jackie's yeah, kind of true, getting at Pete because mm. he's not able to provide for his family currently but I think that definitely they could have done more mm. with that. Mm. I haven't really I haven't really considered that side of things until now and I think that you're absolutely right. I think part of that um gets at a real problem that the new series has with the 45 minute episode mm. um length because it just can't drill down into world building the way the classic series I think we talked about this in the last episode actually but the way the classic series did pretty much most of the time not always super successfully but it always had plenty of space that it could devote to world building and um you got writers like um I mean the obvious example is Robert Holmes who just routinely managed to construct living breathing worlds in which you could feel the materiality of how that world operates Uh, The new series finds it a lot harder to do that. And I think that's something we can see in this series, actually, um, as as we get through it. it, There are success stories, definitely, from that point of view. There are some episodes that I think do it very, very well. But it it has trouble with... It noticeably has trouble with that at times. Sometimes even in two-parters, frankly. So that's something that I think we can keep an eye on moving forward as well. It's a it's a substantial difference between what the classic series can do and what the new series can do. Because the new series very obviously has loads of things it can do that the classic series couldn't even dream of. In terms of obviously its budget, but also and its technology. Um, and just even just its place in the cultural consciousness, I think. Allow, allows its space to do things that the classic series couldn't have done. But equally, there are things that the classic series did and could do that the new series, at the very least, finds difficult. Mm. Um, when will the new series have the courage to show a man acting at some bubble wrap for a sustained <laughs> scene? <laughs> and that is partly a joke, but it's also exactly one of the things that I really like about the classic series. Well, yeah, I mean... I, Sorry, I'm going to bring up Tardis Auditorium again. Um, but in her entry on Ark and Space, Elizabeth Sandford does have, brings up this idea of people in Doctor Who or rather the production crew of Doctor Who believing in their bubble wrap, which is to say that they can present things like that with completely straight faces, as it were, mm. and have it just somehow work. Because in that moment, part of you is aware Yes, this is a man with bubble wrap on his arm. But part of you 
also does a little bit believe that he's turning into a giant mantis. Mm. Mm. And it's the show's a the classic series ability to sell that. Not always, not consistently. But when it could is something that's quite remarkable as well. Uh, and it, like it must be said, I'm, as much as I'm praising the new series technology, there are things in this series that do not look good. Yeah. Uh, I, I assume they did in 2005. I don't remember. But... <laughs> I feel like it didn't take very long for like the sticky plastic bin to look yeah. bad. Because I think that was one of the bits of... Mm the um, Eccleston series that was getting kind of memed on quite like yeah, early on. Yeah, no, I do remember um, that. Even before there was stuff that people decided to generally agree was bad that like got even worse takedowns, which I'm, I am thinking of Love and Monsters, which yes. is like, I haven't seen it in ages, but that was the example of the thing that people decided was bad and then just like made jokes about how bad mm-hmm. it was for a really long time. Mm-hmm. And I think that the bin and plastic Mickey... <laughs> kind of like had that were propelled to that kind of status quite yeah. soon after that series like I so I feel like it didn't take that long for those effects to be looking a bit I mean I say effects it's not really it's mom it's makeup with Mickey but like the bin mm. it didn't yeah. take that long for it to look a bit worse for wear. <laughs> mm-hmm. CGI infamously ages quite badly especially like when it's super super high budget it hangs on a bit longer like the Lord of the Rings films still look okay, mm. uh, even though they're nearly twenty years old. But um, oh my god, I know, I know. <laughs> um, but at at the same time, you can you can look at things from eight or nine years ago quite easily, and it already looks rubbery and like quite bad. But yeah, that that's kind of that's just a, a limitation of of the technology and of the for all again for all that I'm talking about the budget. It's the BBC. Mm. It doesn't have infinite budget by any means. It definitely isn't as like high a budget as it got to have after no, the um, success of the show either. Like mm. I think this was still kind of a obviously kind of a trial run, and so it probably had a maybe a bit bigger budget than shows that they went on to launch like Merlin and stuff, but probably mm-hmm. not mm-hmm. that much bigger. So I guess they had to kind of choose what they wanted to. Mm invest the budget that they had in well we'll we'll see that when we come to boomtown i think <laughs> well, the other interesting thing about that actually something i well picked up on for a long time even more so the last time i watched it was um and i don't know if this was for budgetary reasons or for script reasons or thematic or for a bit of both the use of setting in this series is very different from most other series of dot two uh in that settings the same settings tend to recur in different time periods yeah so satellite five comes mm. up twice mm. um, cardiff comes up cardiff twice. comes up twice in the and the, the rift specifically yeah emphasizing the fact that they are in the same place mm. um london because london, london. Yeah. and yeah. rose is from there so well yeah. yeah it's it's kind of tying rose to a family which i'll talk about later yeah. actually well it's also um an Earthbound um, series, more or less. If you count Satellite 5 as part of Earth, because it's in its orbit, yeah. um, none of the, the episodes take place away from Earth. And it's not until Series 2, it's not until Girl in the Fireplace is really the first episode of the new series that is yeah. substantially away from Earth. Yeah. And even then, 
And even then, yeah. <laughs> it's kind of also basically a historical episode set on Earth in yeah. some ways. Which I, I guess would make it Impossible Planet Satan bit. Mm. Would you yeah. count New Earth? Because yeah, New Earth is technically Earth, that. but it's also not. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I would count that as not Earth, because yeah. I think the point is how different it is, even though it's like a an attempt at... Well, at least renaming it as Earth, but yeah. I don't know. I think that is debatable because it's definitely still within the context of like. I think you could make the same argument about Satellite Five, though. Mm. Mm. Yeah. But anyway, yeah, that's that's kind of beside the point. But yeah, I I see. I I think that the point about this being quite an Earth-based series mm. is definitely. Mm. I hadn't really thought of it because the aliens were so alien yeah. well this is the thing yeah because um we will talk about this certainly when we get to the end of the world but um like it doesn't it's not necessarily being conservative from that point of view it's, it's not it's not being like oh well the audiences at home can't handle alien planets <laughs> um it'll just blow their minds because end of the world presents us with very pointedly kind of non-humanoid aliens pretty much right off the bat but yeah, it it is interesting. I think I think it's I mean it's partly to do with the fact that the the show wants to construct this kind of quite tightly bound arc where like obviously Satellite Five is important for the finale, so that needs to be set up. And there's the Slitheen episodes are kind of tied together and mm-hmm. things like that. The uh, the hospital in the Slitheen episode is the same hospital. As in The Empty Child and the Doctor Dances. Yeah, Beth and caught that yeah. while we were watching it. I'd never noticed before. Because I remembered it was Albion Hospital from mm. Empty Child, Doctor Dances, and then I was like, you know what? <laughs> <laughs> There's one more thing that I want to touch on, actually, about this series before we move on to talking about the episodes. And that is the concept that gets introduced here, bit by bit, actually, kind of teased out over the course of the series, um, that will then come to dominate the new series at least until the um the 50th anniversary which is which is the twin notions of um the time war and the doctor being the last of the time lords which is something that is so integral to the new series that i think for some new series fans um i kind of had this going back to the class even though i'd seen some of the classic series i still found it a little bit jarring being more used to the new series to go back and be like oh there are time lords and they're like not the huge mythic figures that they're portrayed as um in their absence although i know sometimes they are sometimes they aren't that's a whole thing you didn't need to be so upset about all of that nonsense sir not appearing in this episode mr christopher eggleston (laughs) (laughs) it is kind of weird that they like undo the time war and he's like not even really Mm. there for it yeah, well, that was his own choice. I know. By all accounts, but... I just... I know that they totally can sort of use clips of him or, like, someone else running around in a leather jacket and, like, that's not weird, but it still feels weird to me, like, watching it because I'm like, should have been my boy, Chris. <laughs> but he's fine. He's, like, doing well and he's got a really great Instagram account. He does, he does. Yeah, I wanted to touch on this notion of the last of the Time Lords because... I think it kind of... It's something that's quite integral to Davy's take on the character. Um, not really Moffat's at all, which is part of the re- probably part of the reason he undoes it. 
but the the notion of the kind of this is much much more the case for Tennant than Eccleston but the kind of the lonely god notion uh, of the Doctor as it makes the Doctor more a more singular figure I think removing the Time Lords from the equation and it also paradoxically increases the impact of the Master um, when he shows up having fun times at the end of the universe I think it's quite good I think it's quite a good move partly to create the tone that they clearly wanted for the new series mm-hmm. this kind of darker tone but that can also be focused on the doctor as like an emotional being with an arc sure, across yeah. the series mm-hmm. but i think it also makes sense as like a practical thing because i think that if you had gallifrey still out there somewhere then you've kind of got to explain at some point gallifrey and a potted history of what we know about the time lords and i feel like by not having that you kind of sidestep having to do that right off the bat which stops you from getting bogged down in like the lore and you can get on to the more kind of i don't know just the more like the, the potential for adventure mm-hmm. of the technology the doctor has and also you don't have to worry about him like awkwardly bumping into other time lords in like space tesco or whatever <laughs> <laughs> yeah i think i really like the way it it parallels the gap between the yeah. new series and the classic series. I think that's really good. Uh, and like you say, that the fact that it's getting rid of that baggage of the Time Lords. I also find it a shame, because I find the Time Lords really interesting, especially when they're portrayed as kind of corrupt. And, mm. But um, but the, yeah. the new series manages to do that as yeah, well. Yeah, it, so. it does, yeah. yeah. So uh, I quite like it. Uh, and I think it, it's, it's very good, again, for establishing Eccleston's character. Mm-hmm. And it... It provides a logic to the way in which the character goes. I mean, like I know I've said before about the character, you know, historically has already had this darkness, but there are points in this series that you would not get away with and shouldn't get away with without some kind of reasoning behind why he's behaving the way he is. Mm-hmm. For example, when he tortures the Dalek, yeah. the kind of cruelty with which he sort of treats Cassandra's death. Mm. Um, there's there's the number of times that you see Eccleston toting a gun quite enthusiastically. Mm-hmm. All of those things wouldn't make sense unless the time war was, was, was the thing. And because it is there, I think it, it, it does work and it is permissible and it allows you to do interesting things with the character and ask interesting questions about him. Yeah. <laughs> yes to all of that um, yeah I mean I am interested in this notion of the time war as a parallel for the wilderness years um, as this kind of this unrepresentable gap in the continuity even even the day of the doctor the huge 50th anniversary special gives us the tiniest glimpse of it uh, and to be honest it's, it's I really like the day of the doctor but that glimpse is weird because it's it feels so much like you're seeing something you shouldn't be seeing and that can't really live up to the kind of the weird mythic status that it's given within canon mm-hmm. as this this thing of that's of a scale that you can't even imagine that the rest of the universe is kind of well it's 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 strange sometimes the rest of the universe seems to be very aware of it and sometimes not at all uh, but i guess that that's depending on who you're talking to and where in time you are i think it is time that we move on to going episode by episode so, let's start at the very beginning, a very good place to start, with Rose. What do you think? 
You could stay here, fill your life with work and food and sleep, or you could go uh, anywhere. Is it always this dangerous? Yeah. So, Rose is... I think I have always thought of Rose, and I actually don't think this is entirely fair, but I've always thought of it as almost like a barometer for, like, a kind of standard of decent Doctor Who. Um, it kind of establishes it itself that way, where, like, it's almost like the midpoint of how I think of an episode in terms of quality, which I think is underselling how good it is, actually, in that I think it's it, it's an episode that has a lot to do, a lot to set up, and does it very well, very economically, which in a way kind of means it can't be spectacular, because it has so much that it needs to do, in a way that even, say, an episode like The Eleventh Hour, which is an episode that a lot of people really, really like, also has quite a bit to set up, but has enough room that it can be kind of a bit more spectacular and have a bit more pizzazz to it, because it's really just setting up a doctor and a companion, rather than the whole notion of there being a doctor again. So from that point of view, I think it's an episode that is very successful at what it tries, it sets out to do for the most part. And for that reason alone, I think it's it's to be respected. Um, I do actually enjoy this episode quite a lot. I mean, I, I, I it's not up there with my favourites in this mm. series, but I think that I still have kind of a, a memory of what it meant to me when I first saw it, I think. There was something about it when I first saw it that instantly I was like... I'm going to dedicate a good portion of my life to thinking about this show. <laughs> so I feel like for that reason, I have a kind of fondness for it that I can't quite see past in some ways. But I mean, I, I think it's a perfectly, perfectly good episode, really. Um, I think it sets up everything very well. And I think that like the, the plot with the Autons and the nesting consciousness is kind of enough that the stakes feel worth caring about in the time that they have to set it up, but it's also not so involved that it detracts from all of the kind of groundwork that we've got to do with who is Rose, who is the Doctor, who are the kind of extra people in Rose's life that we're going to be seeing more of later. And I think that it had a lot to get through and it did it very well. I still don't fully understand what Rose is doing at the beginning of the episode where mm. she takes the money down to the basement. However, I think that's just because I sort of assumed when I first watched it that when I was a grown-up, I would understand what was going on mm. because it must just be a normal thing that people do in shops. And I have now worked in a <laughs> shop very similar yeah. to where Rose works and I'm still a bit like, oh, right, so I guess it's like they had a lottery syndicate at the store yeah, or something? I think so. Yeah, it, was, it is lottery tickets. He does say it's lottery tickets, yeah. but I don't quite know why I don't know she's, what she's doing with the now. money, though, yeah. And I don't know why she's taking them to the chief electrician. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it doesn't really matter, is the thing. It's just that, like, I'm still, after all these years, they could have just had her be cashing up and taking the money to the yeah, cash office. Yeah, it makes more sense. That's something that people do, like... Because, I mean, another... Um, Another thing that unites the three of us, actually, is that we have all worked in, like, large shops, large kind of department well. store types. <laughs> yeah, ve- like, like stuff that's it's similar enough to At what Rose is doing. At least analogous to what Rose does. Doing. Yeah, yeah. Um, she doesn't seem to be doing very much for a busy department store in <laughs> no. London, but... 
more power to her if she could get away with it then yeah mm. i'll let jacob say his bit now i've got off rages about the <laughs> bloody lottery money it is the most confusing element of the story <laughs> maybe it's actually essential i don't know but um i also like this episode i think you're absolutely right when you say this is kind of you see it as a kind of benchmark for like a a good standard of a doctor episode i think yeah this is it's solid i think it sets up all the characters and the situation very economically. Doesn't make the dreadful error that the TV movie does by having another Doctor in it mm. and then regenerating um, and thereby not actually giving enough space to establish the characters properly. If there's issues I have with it is that I can see the seeds of some of the things I don't like about the <laughs> C Davies era starting to come through. Um, the seeds of doom. <laughs> yeah. And also the seeds of death. Yes, <laughs> like some of the some of the some of the silliness around, as we said, the wheelie bin, hmm. uh, Mickey, Murray Gold's overpowering, <laughs> over the top music. Um, yeah, again, the lack of subtlety that I mentioned here. It's not it's not too bad, but it's it's I, I can see the the starting elements of it. But it is it is a solid episode as a Russell T Davies episode. It's I think it's one of his better ones. Hmm. I would say. I mean, actually, something that both of you kind of brought up is that this is a strange episode in that it's it goes to real lengths to present us with, like, this is the real world. This is the kind of quotidian, everyday world of normal life where you live. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but it's a weird real world. Mm-hmm. Like, there's the, the bin eats Mickey in broad daylight. Rose isn't really doing much in a busy department store in the centre of London. Though speaking of the centre of London, there's a great bit after the, the shop's blown up where uh, I think Rose hears on the news that central London is closed off. <laughs> central London. <laughs> All of central London. Which is astonishing. And yeah, there's there's a, a really strange continuity thing where like the the Doctor sort of I was trying to come up with some kind of wrestling terminology there and then remembered I know nothing about wrestling. But he, like, slams an auton arm through Jackie's glass coffee table. And that's just kind of never... For some reason, Jackie never seems to miss that coffee table. Uh, Despite the fact that that's something you would miss. (laughs) Especially when you came back into your living room to find glass all over the place. uh, And so it's basically... uh, And I don't even mean, mean this as a criticism so much as an observation, but... It's a TV version of the real world, almost like kind of a self-consciously TV version of the real world where these kinds of things can happen, where you can you can work in these kinds of odd, broad strokes, because as long as you've got the flavor of the kind of the reality down, that's what matters. It's in a weird way, it parallels what I was saying about Inferno last time around, where it gives you the flavor of the, the parallel universe. And that's kind of all you need. I think Rose is doing something actually quite similar. I think it's doing it very differently, at least what Inferno is doing, and it to two different ends. I think the other thing that's worth pointing out with this kind of like so this very strange reality is is that you can very clearly see in the episode how it's trying to set itself up as selling selling the, the selling the story and selling the program, particularly in a in a kind of international sense mm. like because when you look at it it's just the fact that it's set in london for starters 
it's just filled with signifiers of what people think is quintessentially the UK. You know, it's, mm. it's like you see the Houses of Parliament when they're going across the bridge. London Eye. The London Eye is, yeah, central point of the plot. There's even, I didn't know this, I watched this today in preparation. <laughs> I found a very poor quality uh, episode of Doctor Who Confidentially. Oh, I remember <laughs> that. And. Um, they said on the bit on the bridge, they actually had to wait for two London buses to appear. <laughs> they even went so far. They want all these cult, these like you know cultural signifiers of London and them, and what Britishness supposedly is. But they even kept refilming them running down the bridge until two buses were in shot. And then they went right. That's it. We've got it. <laughs> but yeah, I think there is there's an interesting. I think there's an interesting tension between that. And the fact that this has the Autons in, which, you know, is kind of, you would expect would facilitate some kind of concern about marketing and consumerism. Mm, which is and what yet, we talked about last time, in Yeah, fact. yeah. And yet the programme is very self-consciously marketing itself. And mm. very self-consciously marketing a very restricted vision of what the UK is, mm. given that it's London. Uh, mm-hmm. And you know, as, as we were saying, like, they do go to Wales, but given... The showrunner is Welsh. It's quite surprising how London-centric it, it is. I'm quite like shocked that they filmed as much of it in London as you, as that seems to imply. Not not because it doesn't look mm. like London, but because I just sort mm. of assumed that they were like secretly shooting in Cardiff. I mean, all a lot. Time. Of, I think I think a lot <laughs> of it was in Cardiff, but I know stuff like the bridge and like the yeah. iconic stuff will have been in London. Right. Yeah. I hadn't really thought of the fact that they were thinking of selling it internationally that early. I I think I feel like I'd sort of always imagined, and perhaps quite idealistically, that the fact that it went on to be an international success was kind of accidental. And I guess that to some extent it's like up to chance. But it's kind of weird to think about the fact that they were they had a view to like selling it to the US and whatever so I mean, early. Maybe I'm ascribing intentionality, but I just I just more thought. The fact that there's so many of those things in there mm. made me wonder if that's what was going on. But it could be maybe that. Not. It, it could be that. The other thing it could possibly be is them trying to make it like up to date and relevant. Mm. And so they're just trying to put like current things that are always in the consciousness in, which is another reason for saying mm. in London, I guess, because that's kind of like until quite recently and possibly still seen as like the most up to date. English say yeah mm-hmm. well yeah I mean certainly that's a central concern of this series being up to date being contemporary as we will certainly be getting to <laughs> later to the point that it's quite dated in a lot of ways now but yeah it's there's a palpable anxiety I think about this series about being relevant in a contemporary setting which we see in quite a few instances, particularly in the, well, obviously in the kind of present day sort of set episodes. And I think to some extent that is, it fades out a little bit when the show after the series is clearly very successful. But I think it remains the case for all of Davies' era, certainly. I don't think it's nearly as strong in Moffat's era, although it is still there somewhere. And I think, I think it's, slid back in in uh, Chibnall's era so far, actually, in some ways. But, um, I don't know, fam. <laughs> we were literally talking about that yesterday, about how badly that's going to date. Actually, I was kind of wondering when I 
would bring this up because this is a point that touches on a lot of episodes but I think that actually that looking back this is kind of a weird transitional point in I guess family entertainment but in sort of what is broadcast on tv where there are certain things that it's now okay to like bring up but that nobody would think of analyzing beyond the like surface level mm. reference so there's a couple of things throughout the series there's the like reference in um in the unquiet dead to um the undertaker copying a feel mm. of rose while she's like being chloroformed which is okay to apparently okay to sort of mention and be like ooh look at us we're talking about vaguely sexual themes but then they have then there's a weird like unwillingness or just like not thinking of the fact that like that's a kind of horrible thing to be yeah. bringing up and like there's a few other things um doo -doo 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 -doo. there's the bit in like an empty child slash the doctor dances where um what's her name is it Nancy Nancy I was I was trying to be like oh it can't possibly be Nancy that's the most like <laughs> Oliver Twist thing and then it is and um, when she like threatens to out the mm. the uh, guy yeah. which is like quite a scary thing to do to somebody in the like 40s um as evidenced by like the historical record that's not like an okay thing to be threatening but like it's just kind of like a passing reference to be like oh we're gonna mention extramarital affairs and be edgy but like actually like it's a bit weird and there's a few there's a few other things as well, but basically the point is it's kind of a weird moment where it became okay to talk about um, more sort of sexual themes or like LGBTQ issues, but they don't feel like there's any need to sort of go beyond a kind of surface level thing. Oh, the other thing is Rose using um, the word gay as like a pejorative. Oh, in yeah. Aliens of London. Oh, yeah, I forgot about that. And I actually remember watching, I think, an episode of Doctor Who Confidential at the time or like seeing something where Russell T. Davis, it must have been after that, actually, where he like came into some criticism for using the word like that, even at that time. And he sort of, his justification for it, if I recall correctly, is something like, oh, well, that's the way that teenage girls or like girls like Rose would talk so that's why I used it like that however I think it's kind of weird because also 19 year old and like early 20s for Mickey young people probably also swear quite a lot yeah and we're not gonna have them swear so there's clearly a line with what they were gonna say and weren't in a family show mm. and I feel like I can kind of I can see why he justified it in that way and certainly it was something I heard a lot in school at the time like the word being used in that way so it was definitely like a contemporary usage but I don't think that you necessarily then should like replicate that on national yeah. television and just like let it slide by because it's actually really weirdly dated as well because yeah. when we rewatched it like, I remembered at the time, but, like, I think it kind of just sounds like, like, Rose is acknowledging the Doctor's interest in, like... Yeah, it, do it doesn't <laughs> seem like a pejorative is the weird thing. Uh, you kind of have to work out from context, like, what she even means by that. Mm. Uh, and also, I'm not buying the teenager's justification, because I was 14 in 2005, mm. and, like, I wouldn't... People around me wouldn't have been using gay as a pejorative. Maybe, maybe you just... I'm guessing you just didn't even think about it. Because I know he wrote... He wrote Queer as Folk, didn't he? Yeah. Which mm -hmm. I've never seen. But that's... 
to my knowledge, that's supposed to be like fairly progressive in terms of. Supposedly, it's very kind of yeah. groundbreaking. Yeah, I've yeah. never seen it. Either. So maybe you just just yeah, didn't I think mean, about it at all. Obviously, which is a problem. I mean, it's probably worth saying that like Rusty Davis himself is like a gay man, yeah. so yeah. that's a context for him using the word or choosing to use the word in that way. That is part of the reason why I'm being a bit more considerate of like the reasoning than if it was like somebody who didn't have any history with the use of that word. Mm-hmm. I wasn't using it in that way at the time, but I was in a school where people were using it all I was the saying time. It was widespread. What I, I, was, I was, but a couple of years before that, when I was 11 or 12, which is why I'm kind of a bit iffy on the, the oh, teenagers. Oh, like bit. maybe they grew yeah. out of it. Because yeah. I'm thinking of like that era... But at that era, I was like 11 or 12. So if maybe it was like a thing that younger, well, not even teenagers, but like younger adolescents were experimenting with using in like a homophobic way. Yeah, that's but what then, I would have thought. But then maybe a 19-year-old isn't going to be. Yeah, that that was, that was why it sounded strange to me, I think, um, even bearing in mind. Why, actually, in Davy's defense of it, sounded weird because it's something that, like, a 12-year-old, sure, fair enough, I can see that. But a 19-year-old just really does not. It might be a, a slightly patronizing right. idea about, like, working class people being uneducated yeah. as well, which is a little bit, I don't know, because it is something like the kind of girl that Rose is mm. something like that. I'd have to look up the exact phrasing. But, like, it's a bit weird that I've chosen to bring this up in Rose, in the episode Rose, which isn't really where any of these things happen, but I just felt like I wanted to get it out of the way. No, it's worth bringing these things it up is, so yeah. we can kind of keep an eye on as we go through the episodes. Anyway. And I think certainly, like, you're saying this question of, like, again, the, how it plays into the working class portrayal. I think I certainly have a problem with, with episodes that we'll get onto later, like, the Impossible Planet in the Satan Pit, and how Rose is portrayed in that episode, because uh, I mm. don't like the way that they they use her character and the way they portray her, uh, and I think it does play into that kind of idea of like being uneducated or whatever. Yeah. See, um, a lot of my memories of Rose actually are from this mm. series, mm. yeah, um, which is something that will be challenged as we get to other series in the new in the in like Russell T Davis era, but actually. I think part of the reason why I remember Rose so fondly, even after just talking about the fact that he like that like Russell T Davis lets her use like a slur, mm. but is because I, I think that, on the whole, her character in this series is quite well handled and I like mm. her, but I guess this does kind of tie finally tie back into the episode <laughs> Rose, <laughs> because this it's where they initially set up her character and the positives that she can bring to the Doctor's world and such. And I feel like it has clearly has made a strong impact because this is the Rose that I think of when I think of Rose as a companion. Like, not the Rose that, like, uses gay as a pejorative in Aliens of London, not, like, necessarily the Rose of the later series that she's in. I think of, like... Rose in a punky fish hoodie, like, um, <laughs> hanging out with Christopher Eccleston. And, yeah, I, I feel like there's something quite 
iconic about this episode and like the representation of her in this series that has stuck with me and mm. partly prob- that might be why I have like an abiding fondness for this episode even though it's like just fine <laughs> yeah. it's good I'd be interested actually um just on, on a general note because like in the last couple of years, I can't remember exactly when it was, um, Davies released um, a novelization of this episode, mm. uh, a target novelization. There there were like four in the range and the others were like um, Moffat doing Dave the Doctor, Paul Cornell doing Twice Upon a Time, and I can't remember what the other one was off the top of my head. Uh, I'd be interested to, to read that actually, um, just because like I say, this is an episode that is kind of setting up so much framework mm-hmm. that I'd be interested to see what Davies can, could do with it if he kind of slowed it down and like, and for all, like, I'm, that's not me criticizing the pacing, I think it's very, very well paced actually, but I, I'd be interested to see what happens if Davies slows down and like explore, presumably explores some more of Rose's everyday life and that kind of thing. It's a good 100 pages on the lottery subplot. I hope so. <laughs> the, the abiding mystery. Uh, Mickey actually uh, got all the money, so even while he's a suspected murderer, he's like living large for a good six months. <laughs> I like Mickey a lot. Let's put that out there whilst he, in the episode where he's introduced. He's huh? kind of like a pathetic man-child at this point. But he's very... I like him as a character. I think he's hmm. quite endearing in a lot of ways. Yeah, I think I actually probably like Mickey more than I like Rose in some ways. I don't know. I kind of like Mickey, Jackie and Rose kind of... As a unit? As a trio, but also like in equal measures individually mm. to some extent. I'm very fond of Jackie. <laughs> yeah, I like Jackie a lot. In this episode... We haven't really talked about Jackie, actually. I'm going to now. Good. What an icon. <laughs> um, <laughs> Dora is like in the kitchen. A man, a random man's in her house and she decides to like absolutely go for it and make a play. <laughs> like the confidence. <laughs> like, <laughs> I think, I think Jackie's really funny and really sweet mm. and I like that, I mean, this is more a nod what I'm going to say now is a nod toward what, towards what we'll say in the next episode about probably Father's Day, but I like that she gets a lot of credit for the fact that, like, she brought up Rose to mm. be, like, the person mm. that is mm. Rose today and did a good job and I'm proud of her. <laughs> I think Jackie could have been... It would be very, very easy to get, get Jackie very wrong, I think, mm. um, because of the way in which she's kind of flirting with stereotypes as it were but i think she's generally handled with a lot of sensitivity to such that she is kind of very very endearing there's enough depth to her to kind of defy what could have been quite a dodgy representation of kind of a a middle-aged working class woman Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and living in a council flat does she work? Because I was trying to remember, and I don't think there's any reference. I don't think they ever mention anything like yeah. that. She sort of vaguely mentions, like, possibly kind of short-term jobs that Rose could do while she's waiting yeah. for... Yeah. So I think that there might be... The, you could... There's maybe an implication that she mm. occasionally does those kinds of mm. jobs yeah. as well. Yeah. Mm. But um, I'm guessing that... I mean, Rose is not a child, but she's only just an adult so I guess maybe like Jackie's had to not work so that she can bring up Rose Hmm. um or something yeah I mean she might just not have been able to get a job as well Hmm. 
But then we don't know what Mickey does either. Mm. Although I I think we find out later that he was looking after his grandma for like some of the time. Yeah. But that's not really in this series, and mm. he he does. It's mm. not it's not clear if he has a job or what it is. So it might just be that they decided not to focus on the work lives of mm. Jackie and Mickey. Which is potentially a failing, I think. Uh, mm. I think the show gets away with it. Mm. But mm. Um, that's I think that's an example of the kind of materiality that you were talking about, yeah. Jacob. That yeah. being kind of elided in a little way. Because we, I mean, we, we know what Rose does, at least at the beginning of this episode. Mm. Uh, and, you know, we, we certainly know what Pete sort of does for a sort of living uh, <laughs> in Father's Day. Um, but other than that, mm. there's not a whole lot of attention paid to anyone's work lives, really. Because I, 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 I've, I've got sympathy for them not including it in the first episode. Yeah. Because, I, like you say, there's so much to set up. It's understandable. But given that it's a long-running series, which in this particular series is very much rooted within the family and the domestic. Mm-hmm. You would think that at some point they might have a chance to just even just mention it, if mm. not go into it in some way. Because Jackie just always sort of seems to be at home when yeah. they're like... Mm. Mm. She's at home and she's in the laundrette in Love and Monsters. That's about it. Ah, but that's in the later series where the number of locations where you can see Jackie <laughs> is expanded on. You oh, do no. see her at the shops in this episode. You see her at the shops. You see her in a cafe eating oh, some yeah. chips. Yeah. You see her in uh, driving a tow truck. Oh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> so there we go. Maybe that's what she does for a living. Yeah. She's, she, she's in construction. Yeah. Um, like Tom Baker was. Uh, mm. They work together on the same sites. <laughs> That's an amazing image that I will treasure for the rest of my life now. <laughs> oh, what do we think about Clive in this episode, actually? I was going to bring up Clive, oh, actually. Oh, Clive's oh. really interesting. Because Clive is very, very obviously Doctor Who fandom. Mm. Uh, mm. And kind of a fairly affectionate portrait, I would say, of Doctor Who fandom. In the way that the Absorbaloff is the exact opposite of In Love and Monsters again. Which, for some reason, is the sub-theme of this episode. The theme of this episode is iconic Jackie Tyler seduction moments. <laughs> <laughs> this one washed up on the coast of Sumatra on the very night that Krakatoa exploded. The Doctor is a legend woven throughout history. When disaster comes, he's there. He brings the storm in his wake. And he has one constant companion. Who's that? Death. I think it's kind of interesting. This is why this is kind of why I brought it up. This was the whole reason, so get ready. That um when Rose is first going into his house and um his wife is like coming to close the door with a basket of laundry or something, she's like, A girl, a girl <laughs> wants to know about yeah. the doctor. Which so I don't really know that much about the state of like Doctor Who fandom before the new series. However, I would suspect that even if the circles that the writers for this series moved in were mostly male, that that was not the broader, like, the actual demographics because I think that women in sci-fi fandoms kind of historically get ignored even when, as is the case with Star Trek, they're kind of the people that made the show a success. Mm -hmm. And so I just felt like that was a little bit, like, a little bit weird. I don't know if it was a joke about the kind of people that, people at the time expected to be Doctor Who fans, mm-hmm. which it could I, be. I think that would be the charitable interpretation. But I just feel like it's a bit 
of a weird move because yeah. even if, and this probably wasn't the case, but even if Russell T. Davis's fandom circles were exclusively not women. Which they weren't. Yeah. I can full on say they weren't because there were female writers writing for the, uh, the new adventures. Yeah. Yeah. Then I still think it's a little bit mm. short-sighted to, to not, to, to, to make that kind of like a, mm. a joke. I'd never really thought about it in that way because I hadn't actually thought of it in terms of the fandom, um, even though that seems really obvious now. I, I guess I more thought of it in terms of the fact that he's almost portrayed as a kind of conspiracy theorist. Mm. And I don't know. But what, what I do know, because I've been reading about conspiracy theories recently, <laughs> and if anyone wants to know more about this, Peter Knight's a really good person to read on it. Um, and he was talking about the fact that there's not a lot of research done I mean, I, I don't expect Russell T. Davies was thinking of this at all, but uh, there's, there's not been a lot of research done in terms of the fact that it's n- mainly men who, who are interested in conspiracy mm. theories. Um, they, like, there's, no, there's very little research done into that, and he was saying we should do research on it. So maybe, very charitably <laughs> interpreting it, maybe that's why he did it. But What's no, kind I think... of weird though, is it, weird though, is it kind mm. of implies that like the people mm. who've encountered the Doctor and therefore thought to look him up up yeah. until that point have been like exclusively yeah. men. Yeah, no. Or you're maybe right. they haven't encountered the Doctor, but then how do they know mm. about? I'm I'm gonna bring up Love and Monsters again <laughs> <laughs> because that's actually kind of a swerve away because the group of people who are obsessed with the Doctor in that is I think fifty fifty uh, from memory. No, actually, there's three women, two men. Mm. So you can but see that I as mean, a corrective. The, the most of the people that we've seen having sustained mm. engagement with the Doctor up to this point in the show have been young women. So actually, <laughs> it should be like, oh, another young woman who's met the yeah. Doctor. <laughs> I see how it is. <laughs> you go, girls. <laughs> she goes through and like Sarah Jane sitting there, and Tegan's in a corner, and Joe's in another corner. Yeah. Tegan's, oh, no, Tegan's busy jet setting. Oh, that's true, yeah. Tegan's still trying to find Heathrow. <laughs> yeah, she is. <laughs> the car's still broken down. <laughs> She's still looking for the tire iron. <laughs> but yeah, um, I guess it is kind of interesting because that's the first representation that we have of the Doctor Who fandom mm-hmm. on the screen. Although I will say that even in, obviously I've just, done the criticism about the oh it's a girl but i think that the representation of doctor who fandom in the show is like basically always more positive than for example the representation of the sherlock fandom in sherlock Mm, so Mm. i do appreciate the kind of fondness Mm. that they have for the fandom every time Mm. they're i do know what you mean with that line though because i found it superfluous so yeah I, i didn't quite get why it was in there uh it just confused me I suppose the difference in terms of fandoms would be that the Sherlock fandom is something that grew up around the show while it was being made, while the creator after the creators had made it. Whereas with Doctor Who, the people who write Doctor Who were Doctor Who fans. Yeah, but I mean, like, Sherlock is, to an increasingly lesser extent over its run, based on the Sherlock Holmes novels. So there was an existing fandom for the show before the show was a mm, thing. I would say it's a different thing, though. Yeah, yeah I think it's... I, I mean, yes, but... Just to... Yeah, I know, I know what you mean, I know what you mean. Mm. November the 22nd, 1963. The assassination of President Kennedy. See? 
See his father. Going further back, uh, April 1912. This is a photograph of the Daniels family of Southampton and friend. This was taken the day before they were due to sail for the New World on the Titanic. And for some unknown reason, they cancelled the trip and survived. There's another weird thing about Clive, actually, that's always slightly bugged me, which is that he shows Rose some pictures of the Doctor, some pictures of Christopher Eccleston's Doctor, like at the, the Titanic and stuff like that. Mm. But it's implied that he's basically just regenerated. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. Um, unless you just didn't have time to find a mirror in all those yeah. other adventures. <laughs> he was very busy keeping people from going on the Titanic. All and... of those were his solo jaunts when Rose was like having a nap <laughs> like later in this you, series. You may have opened up a whole can of worms there, I've just realised. Okay. Because it depends on how you're thinking about time in the series, doesn't it? Because are we saying that... Oh, no, wouldn't, that wouldn't work. Ignore me, it wouldn't work. Because Rose would have been with him, so it wouldn't work. Well, I was going to say if it was his doctor in the future. All of but those that instances work. take place in between yeah. the time he dematerializes the TARDIS at the end of Rose and the time that he brings it back to be like, to say it, it also does time. time because he just remembers. Yeah. <laughs> he went back to 1912 and was like, oh. She's going to love this. <laughs> but then there was like some stuff he had to deal with when it got out of hand. That's my, that's what, <laughs> that's my explanation and I intend to stick to it. <laughs> Because that is pretty much the only time it could have been. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> in his whole lifetime, it totally could be. <laughs> he might even have needed to go and put himself in some pictures. Yeah, so that's true. that Rose, because he knew that Rose would find him. Yeah, that's... I don't know if he would be thinking that far ahead, but like, if we want to get all time paradoxes, I mean, that's things... the problem. I mean, this is one of the things of the series that is an issue just with time itself is. When you have those kind of like timey-wimey episodes where, you know, it's like a future Doctor trying to give messages back or something. Mm. The question is, in the series, do those things only happen once that Doctor has done those oh, things yeah. in the we've future? Got, we've, we've got this with Bad Wolf, actually. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Which yes. maybe we can get to then. I, we'll I don't we'll know. leave it until then, I think, yeah. but, because um, that... That bothers me a lot. I actually wolf. have I have a possible explanation for it, which we can... Mm. get to when we mm. get to it but yeah I, think yeah I think it's never really something that they that they think about in that much depth the time sorry have you just read my note for aliens of london we'll get to that <laughs> I, i've seen one word from it and i, I it's also exciting. saw that word <laughs> i have some questions about this at the end but we'll okay. get <laughs> oh dear you spend all your time thinking about dying like you're going to get killed by eggs or beef or global warming or asteroids. But you never take time to imagine the impossible. That maybe you survive. So, the end of the world. I'm not, I'm not going to say I don't think much of it. It's when I, when I say that, I mean I don't think about it very It's an episode that I forget about quite easily. The end of the world and The Unquiet Dead are both episodes that I kind of almost slightly erased from my memory a little bit. Mm. Less so the end of the world, I think, actually. That at least introduces plot threads that will be picked up on later on. I think it's, in some ways, almost as foundational as Rose, in terms of setting, in this case, I think more the tone of the series, at least under Russell T. Davies, in a lot of ways, actually. Specifically, what I'm thinking of is the fact that it's a kind of, it's a mixture of kind of weird, off-kilter humour and 
extreme earnestness, which strikes me as being very RTD. But also the fact that it's kind of ludicrously over the top in just about every respect imaginable. <laughs> of which Jacob approves massively. So from that point of view, again, I think you can kind of see this as a template in some ways. I think more so than Rose, I think it's a template that will be improved on. I think Davies writes better versions of this this episode. I think various people write better versions of this episode, actually. And from that point of view, I think it's still kind of trying to draw the viewer in in some ways. And I think that explains an awful lot about it, really. As a kind of opposite to what Kieran was saying about the amount that you watched um, this episode and The Unquiet Dead, I actually rewatched this and The Unquiet Dead and the, some of the other first six episodes quite extensively mm. because they were the only ones I had on mm. DVD. And then by the time... I never got the rest of them because by the time we got to the Tenant era... We had a DVD recorder which would, in theory, record the episodes, <laughs> making the purchase of the DVDs unnecessary. Um, so I only ever got like the first half of this series available for me to rewatch, which is something that will like colour my comments throughout the rest of this because it depends on how much I've watched them. But I liked the end of the world when I first watched it. Like first watched it. Um, I don't know how good the aliens look now, but when I watched this when I was, like, 11, it blew my mind. <laughs> mm. <laughs> so that's kind of where I'm coming from on this. But I do think that it's, like, looking back, one of the less good episodes in this series, but I think it's still fine. It's just, compared to some of the others, I don't think that it has a tremendous amount to say, mm. other than it setting up the premise of going to the future mm. which is obviously like a helpful and useful thing to do in a show that is going to do that a lot but I feel like it doesn't really try and do much beyond that and I think that that is not a failing but definitely like a drawback in comparison with other episodes we're going to discuss that like set up something that we need to know about but do a whole lot more as well mm. well I hate this episode <laughs> okay. um, it's the beginning of most of the things that I think are wrong with the Russell C Davies era uh, like you were saying that ludicrous sort of over the top quality is what I don't like about about the programme in this era I think it's at it's worst when it does things like this it's tonally incoherent, you know, it, it, it flips flips between this ridiculous over-the-top comedy and then these occasionally nice, sometimes emotional moments. And, and I, I, I don't, I find the whole thing quite superficial. It's, it's approach to the end of the world and apocalypse is, well, apocalypse is the wrong word, but the end of the world. I find very superficial, uh, including the very flippant comment about climate change, uh, which mm. I'm sure we'll get to at some point. Mm. Yeah, I don't, I don't really have much, much good to say about it. I, I, there's, I mean, I, I can see that there's, there's clearly some attempt at some kind of uh, social commentary about, about, about superficiality and about. Mm. Yeah, but but mm. it doesn't it mm. doesn't work for numerous reasons. Mm. Uh, it's, and it's yeah. it's ironically a shallow commentary on shallow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah, um, yeah. I just I'm not keen in any way. 
Um, and I think my main issue with it is that it, for me, it's symbolically the beginning of a lot of what I think is wrong with the new series. I think it's also actually, um, I didn't mention this and I actually forgot to put it in my notes, but it's part of a perhaps a theme, I don't know if an intentional one, about the idea of humanity in this series, which we get on onto with the idea of the great and bountiful human empire. Mm, yeah. um, but yeah, there's this we'll idea of like, is Cassandra human? Um, or is she dancer? Yes, and it turns out she's both, <laughs> because a woman can have it all. <laughs> yeah, I think that there's this idea of, with the, with the shallowness, this is something that like really jumped out to me when I, we were re-watching it, um, and I think that I'd sort of thought about before, but like, there's this kind of vague idea that plastic surgery is bad because it makes you less than what you are. Yeah. But there's not really any reasoning behind mm. that. And also, mm. troublingly, there's this reference to the fact mm. that Cassandra was a little boy on Earth. Therefore, the fact that she clearly transitioned at some point mm. Mm. is um, sort of portrayed as one of as like one or several in a string of increasingly weird and wacky procedures rather than mm. like mm. just a thing that might have happened and i'm not saying that the, she shouldn't be mm. the body because she is portrayed as trans because that's kind of like villains can be whatever they want to be mm. and mm. that's another that would be another kind of narrowing but mm. i think that it is part of that theme that i was talking about of like oh we're going to mention this thing because it'll make us seem dangerous and relevant yeah. but we're not going to think about the thing we're just going to move right on mm. And also kind of be transphobic. This it's the first time I thought of this, but in relation to that as well, the end of Cassandra's I mean, I don't even want to call it an arc, because that's giving it far too much mm. significance. But the end of it In she, Europe? Yeah, yeah, she yeah. changes gender again, doesn't she? Because she goes and she changes body. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. And I think if you're thinking about it in that sense, that's dodgy as well, surely. Mm, I mean it kind of so I was just looking at my Monsters and Villains book, mm. which I'm not necessarily going to introduce too much material from because like, <laughs> it's not really like canon. But the way that they mm. talk about Cassandra in there is kind of like implying that the change in... That like the mm. change, because it is definitely portrayed as like a change rather than like anything else, was more of a convenient flip in the yeah. way that going into Chip's body is mm, rather yeah. than yeah. like a yeah. process of like personal realisation of mm-hmm. inner feelings and so on. Which, I mean, I can't even really remember what, like, the representation of trans people was like at this time because I feel like it might just have not been there. I really don't think it was there. I don't yeah. remember it being there. But, like, the, the whole thing of her, like, um, just trying to be, like, having all these procedures to be, like, what she thinks I was beautiful and, like, that being related to a transition is kind of has resonances of the, like, would you fuck me? I'd fuck me from like the <laughs> Silence of the Lambs and like that kind of role of like the villain who's got associations with like yeah, changing gender. That's true. Mm-hmm. That's a good point, actually. Yeah, I mean, the only um, sort of representations of trans identity at all that I can think of from from this time are like punchlines in themselves, as mm. this is. Her referring to herself as when I was a boy is clearly a joke. Yeah. positioned as a joke yeah, yeah. Mm. Uh, which is dodgy in itself and as you, as you quite rightly say in the context of 
everything we're given to understand about Cassandra. Mm. Also, it's like she's supposed to be making herself progressively less human. Good. Yeah, there's that as well. Which actually. is a dodgy yeah. thing to associate yeah. with, like trans people. Basically, that whole thing has like, I would put that up for the thing that has aged worse about worst about this series. Mm. But there's quite a lot of contenders, like some mm. of the other. Some of the stuff that we've already discussed is, like, also dodgy, but I think that, like, it's just so at odds with, like, what we could would consider to be, like, basic respect to other human beings yeah. at the moment. And, like, it's weird. I don't understand. They never really offer any justification for the fact that, like, plastic surgery makes you less human other mm. than the fact that, oh, it made her look weird because she's skin now. Yeah. But, like... I don't know, people do all sorts of things to, like, change their bodies. Like, you can't see because this is a podcast, but I have, like, quite a few tattoos at this point. Like, that's a way of, like, changing your body to mm. make it more mm. like the vision of what you want your body to be. It's bad if people feel like they have to change themselves to fit into society, but Cassandra doesn't seem to be changing to fit any, like, yeah. societal <laughs> norm. Yeah. She's doing her thing. <laughs> and I mean, the whole thing, this is what's so strange. The whole thing is conceptually completely incoherent as mm. well. Because it's, it's, it, it's, it seems to be trying to suggest, it's almost like comment on itself is that it's trying to put forward a, a progressive narrative of why we shouldn't be essentialist about what is what is human or whatever. Or, mm. And yet it is being essentialist mm. about yeah. things like gender you know and it's and that's deeply problematic and i mean like people have always like changed their bodies to look different Mm, from how they would be if they didn't it's just that the way that people do it have changed but i feel like there's a i don't understand why there's this judgmental attitude and yeah it's kind of weird because it should just be like oh well it's the future so people are just doing whatever because it's the future and that's cool mm. because like if technology's advanced so much that you can be you know some skin stretched on a frame and that's what you want then i say do it and i'm not mm. defending cassandra's actions but i am defending her yeah. right to consider herself the last human because she is <laughs> The, Unless there's other humans out there, which I think there probably are in this at this point in Doctor Who, but they just don't know about them. But I don't. I think the idea that like looking different from what we think of as being like a normal person now is like not bad. <laughs> there is a weird thing going on uh, across this series, and I, I mean, across Doctor Who in general, in terms of the way the future looks mm-hmm. uh, and is that people's norms don't actually seem to have changed yeah. much at all. Like, I know there was... I can't remember exactly where this was. I think it was in um, Bad Wolf Party of the Ways. There's a bit where someone makes a kind of weirdly heteronormative Oh, no, I think it might be also in Bad Wolf Party of the Ways, but the one that stuck out to me this time was in Empty Child Doctor Dances mm. because um, Rose has just handed Jack oh, the psychic no, paper this, and yeah. it says something like, you have a boyfriend, but you still consider yourself to be available mm. and stuff. And then he hands it back and then, uh, or like whatever. And then she mentions something about that she's there with her partner uh, yeah, this, this or her assistant. Well, yeah. And then he's like, and where is 
he or he makes some reference to he because yeah. the whole thing is like yeah the whole thing is that jack is implying that she might be in a relationship with mm. the doctor but mm. he doesn't know the gender of the person well, she's with well he says something like isn't it something like he says he says him mm. and then he goes how disappointed should i be and it's like oh, well, that's yeah. just assuming that yes. she is heterosexual because yes. but but based on what we mm. come to kind of already know about Jack, because he's got mm. the like flirtation with the army officer. But yeah. what we come to know about him mm. is that he shouldn't be making any assumptions yeah. about yeah, yeah. who the person is that she's with. So it's kind of yeah, it's another one of those things where it's like they kind of want to have it so that the, both the past and the future are very similar to like yeah. the UK in two thousand and five. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, again. if Frederick Jameson was here. <laughs> He would say that <laughs> your representations of the future are always going to be of the present. Yeah, but yeah. It, that doesn't mean that it has to have tons of problematic, dreadful stuff in it. Mm. You know, mm. It's offensive. Oh, um, I also have. I forgot to mention this mm. before. I have with me a, a book that was published just after this series called "The Pocket Essential Doctor Who," which I think is part of a longer-running series of books that Jacob yeah. knows more about. But this was purchased for my family at exactly that time so it's got Mark Campbell who wrote the book his like right on the minute opinions of what the episodes were like and it's great because he gives them marks out of 10 so I will I'm coming up with like his list of rankings so that when we do the rankings Mm. we can compare them but I just want to for context so far uh, he thought that Rose (laughs) was um, 9 out of 10 and he gave wherever it is the end of the world. Something ridiculous, isn't it? I can't remember. It's well, it's not that far out from what I think you were kind of saying. Is it but low? It's, I it's thought low. it was. Oh right, that's fine. It's that's three. Fine. He, gave, he gave it three out of ten, which oh, I think is I really, remember. I think is really quite low because <laughs> yeah. for all that I've been saying about it, like I think it's, it's dated and mm-hmm. in some ways quite horrifically, but yeah, it's like fine as a Doctor Who episode. Yeah, it's about average, I would Mm. say, in terms of like everything else that's going on, Mm. and the the gif, the 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 (laughs) clip that has become a gif of Christopher Eccleston dancing to Tainted Love is like the life, the lifeblood of my of my existence. That's a positive thing I can Mm. say about the episode. It's produced that. I do like the, I I do enjoy the like stupid musical choices for like what has survived. (laughs) Yeah. I, if I, only Toxic by Britney Spears was the only toxic thing that had survived that long. <laughs> <laughs> I actually do have another positive thing to say about this uh. episode. There's an interesting kind of thing going on in it where we get um, something you might not really expect from what the episode is otherwise. You get some attention to the workings of the space station and indeed the workers on the mm. space station. Mm. And it, it, that's kind of I think pointedly contrasted with the kind of the the glitz and the glamour going on elsewhere. So I think there's there's something interesting there. There is a kind of materiality going on there, which I mean I think I think you're right, Jacob. I think that is rare mm. in Davies episodes, or maybe not rare, but it's not as sustained as it might be. Yeah. But at least in this instance, there is something there, and there is I I think that feeds into what you were saying about that this, this episode wants to make a lot of commentary on kind of superficiality by showing us the workings of the space station behind the kind of the reception area that we're seeing. 
And I agree with you that, that it doesn't quite get there. It, mm. um, it's quite incoherent in the way it approaches that. But I think it, it, it that's an interesting element and it's a kind of it's an interestingly kind of progressive element in its way as well. I am um, I'm also just a weirdly big fan of the bit where the guy where they're like um the sort of compare guy is like from the forest of Cheem, we have trees <laughs> even though it's like the most stupid thing i just kind of love it and i kind of wish that they brought back the like tree people yeah. at some point because i'm a fan of them i like that he doesn't bother like naming them well they're like, kind of like trees. a bit of like a collective they've got kind of like a collective consciousness i think it's implied maybe to some extent but also they are individualized yeah in the course of the episode so there's like lady tree and her two boyfriends yeah Mm-hmm. and the doctor her third boyfriend <laughs> but yeah i i i can kind of like see what they were going for with having like such a variety of aliens but it's still weird that they ended up with like mostly or maybe exclusively humanoids no actually do they not no well um there's there's the face of Bo for one ah but he's a face with, yes. o- <laughs> with ovaries for hair. <laughs> like, humans aren't the only things that have faces. That's true. There's a lot of good snoots out there to boop, mm. and I personally want to boop the face of those <laughs> But I think, um, like, what they're going for is, to an extent, aliens that don't quite resemble humans or mm. that, like, aren't necessarily a man in a rubber suit. Sort of thing. Mm. They're they're trying to banish the man in a rubber suit idea. There's the ones with the weird, the weird spirally faces. Oh, oh yeah. Uh, and there's the birds. Yeah. Oh yeah. Two birds. birds. Yeah. There's the adherents of the repeated meme. Yeah, who are devoted to that gif of uh, Christopher <laughs> Eccleston dancing. <laughs> I count myself among their number. They're also like Cassandra's hench people, so yeah. maybe I can do that as well. <laughs> mm. I don't know. <laughs> I'm sorry, sir, we closed. Nonsense. It's rented an undertaker. Keep office hours. The dead don't die on schedule. I demand to see your master. He's not in, sir. Don't to me, child! Summon him at once. I'm awfully sorry, Mr Dickens, but the master's indisposed. Having trouble with your gas? What Shakespeare is going on? The Unquiet Dead. Uh, I kind of almost already gave my opinion on this. It's like... Fine, I guess, <laughs> is my opinion on it. It's one that I've just, I've always found quite, maybe because I've only seen it a couple of times compared to some other episodes in this series, but I've, I've always found it less than memorable, honestly. Mm. Um, like The End of the World, it's interesting in that it kind of introduces a way of doing things that Doctor Who will pick up on. It's the first, well, not quite the first, but... um certainly one of the first celebrity historicals where it gives us a big uh, important historical figure and they then play their part in a story that doesn't necessarily revolve around them in most cases but that they get to be part of at least and um, really i think the first one is um mark of the rye because it has george stevenson in it uh, yeah obviously that is something that doctor who will do a lot you know so it's like the shakespeare code and vincent and the doctor Although I would say both of those, the historical figures are a bit more central than Dickens is here. It's a kind of way of doing history, uh, as it were, that very much plays on audience knowledge and on audience perceptions of who this person is and their place in history. And indeed what that time period is like, which is something I'll get on to in a minute. Mm. 
Um, I have quite positive feelings about this episode, actually. I was one of the ones that I had on DVD, and so I was mm. able to rewatch. But um, I, even watching it again now, I, I still I, I quite enjoyed it. I think that I have some criticisms about it, which I'll probably get into a bit more when we've said our bits. But I like the use of Cardiff as the setting. I think that in this instance, it perhaps I don't know. I don't know if um, Mark Gattis was instructed to use Cardiff as the setting for mm. the historical episode, but I think that the fact that he chose or was told to do so actually puts some limitations on what he can do, which kind of forces a kind of interesting creativity around that. I kind of like the debate about is it okay for the aliens to use the human bodies even though that kind of resolves itself without it ever Mm. needing Mm. to become an ongoing thing. But I kind of like the fact that um, even though this is the past, Rose is kind of being forced to confront preconceptions she might have about what is ethical for an alien race that might not interact with the world the same way we do. Yeah, I mean, I, I, uh, I, I think it's it's fine as an episode. I mean, uh, yeah, it's. I don't think it's anything spectacular. It's just solid. I think it's as ever with the BBC. They do good historicals. It looks good as this historical, but yeah, I enjoy it. I wouldn't. I wouldn't say there's anything spectacular about it, but it's not. It's not bad either. It's just just fine. <laughs> so, I, I think in the same way that like. As I was saying, Rose is like a baseline um, for Doctor Who quality. I think there's a kind of um, a form to Mark Gatiss episodes that they tend to mm. be like, yeah, it's fine. It, yeah, it's <laughs> kind of middling in quality as a general rule. There are some that I think fall below that. Someone, someone might get like sexually harassed in a Mark Gatiss episode. Yeah, yeah. It could go either way. Um, (laughs) all kinds of dodgy things do happen in markets when we get to the it's lantern so oh i'd forgotten that was him anyway so this is my research that i've done because (laughs) i decided that i would like look into something for once in my life i had always sort of assumed that this must have been based on just a fact that charles dickens was in cardiff around this time Mm -hmm. doing a reading because he did so many tours yeah However, upon doing some research, I discovered that actually he never read in Cardiff and may not have visited Cardiff, but he did do a reading in Swansea in 1867 and Newport in January of 1869. So the Newport one would be quite close to when this is because that was his last tour before his death. So I think that actually I'm kind of impressed by the fact that it occupies a historical space that doesn't really we don't have a record of so you don't have to like fill it with references to things that actually happened but it's Mm. a plausible gap for there to be because you could say oh well around the same time that he was doing the speaking engagement in Newport in January he also went to Cardiff because of course why would you go to Swansea and Newport and not Cardiff but it was all covered up somehow because of the shenanigans that went down and so I think that I kind of like how it's in a space where you can't we don't know if he ever went to Cardiff at all but if you wanted to you would kind of be like oh well, it's kind of weird that he didn't go to Cardiff really because it's one of the major cities in Wales so mm-hmm. like maybe he did and that's what this episode is so I think it's kind of fun in that way but I like had always just assumed that because it felt quite 
true to a lot of the other stuff we know about Dickens. I mm. had sort of assumed that he was in Cardiff at least at some point, but it just means that a lot of the elements, like the fact that it's around Christmas time and all of that were just brought in by Mark Gattis and weren't like historically contingent on anything. Yeah, well, I think like my overriding impression of this story is that it's a kind of, it's very much the 1860s as viewed from 2005. Mm-hmm. So kind of in a way the reverse of what we were saying um, about the kind of the future episodes. It's the PPC doing indulging their their period drama yeah. arm. Although uh, I I'd be interested to know because I don't think there was a historical advisor it credited. Um, oh, I don't think there was a historical advisor. No, <laughs> more, I mean I don't know if this is a step too far, but it's more like pastiche, isn't it? Really? Yeah, especially in terms of the fact that it's very obviously playing on Dickens style because yeah. it has Dickens in it. Yeah. And um, yeah. Rose's costume is definitely more Nancy in a production of Oliver mm. Twist than it well, is like anything 1860s. That's exactly what I was going to say. Like, <laughs> it's the it's the kind of thing you can imagine a person from 2005 picking out and, see, and being like, oh, this looks vaguely Victorian, I'll stick this on. Which is kind of what she does. Yeah, so, yeah. Like, well, that, that's not a criticism at all. I think that makes perfect sense. But I'm shocked she didn't cause a riot. <laughs> yeah. And the, yeah, there is... The, Rose occupies a kind of strange space. There's that weird bit where... Um, what's the name of Eve Miles' character? Gwen. Uh, Gwen, thank you. Gwyneth. 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 She's Gwyneth. Gwen in Torchwood. Ah, uh, so. uh, yeah. Okay, yeah. Um, is there implied to be any relation between those characters? Yes. Okay. Um, in In... Stolen Earth and Journey's End, there yeah. is an implication. Oh, like, our favourite episode, obviously. <laughs> yeah. So there's, there's, there's a thing there. Nothing can be left to lie in. Um, <laughs> I don't think Journey's they needed End. to do that, to be, because I think that no. Eve, is it Eve, Eve Miles, the name yeah. of the actress? I think her performance is different enough as the characters that they could have just yeah. like not done anything with that, but like whatever. There's a strange thing in the Davies era with people's descendants looking exactly like them. Because uh, it happens with um, Joan Redfern as well. Oh, yeah. Mm. Uh, but anyway, um, <laughs> that's very by the by. Um, yeah, sorry. So uh, Gwyneth says um, says to Rose something about um, something about that she has the clothes and the breeding. And when I watched that episode, I was like, does she? <laughs> it's, a, it's a strange thing because, like... Um, <laughs> And, and I, I kind of don't quite know what to make of it because it's the it's very strange on the face of it that Rose, who is one thing from 2005 and like we were saying, has is bringing with her her 2005 attitudes mm. quite pointedly in the in the episode, and also like is not exactly speaking in RP. Well, she says something like, doesn't she said something like. You've got all the clothes and breathing, but you act like some kind of wild thing. Yes, it's, yes, that's it. Yeah, so, I, yeah, I don't know. Very I, odd. I, I, it's I, it's I, very to be odd. fair, considering she could see a bit more about Rose, mm. the kind of life that Rose has had in 2005 might look pretty, like, could look mm. quite glam to someone in 1860. Like, she's been to school for longer mm. than Gwyneth has. Yeah, I still don't know where the breeding is going no, from. Do you think I it's don't just know. the clothing and that's it? But it, it specifies mean, clothes and breeding. The clothes yeah. are like... Yeah. yeah. <laughs> weird. The the kind of the whole thing with the clothes is that they really don't fit in. So yeah. it works as like Rose choosing them yeah, and thinking yeah. like this is about right, mm. but it it doesn't necessarily like follow that that's something that like a servant girl in Cardiff would be like 
These are the new Parisian styles. Yeah. <laughs> I swear it is the strangest thing, miss. You've got all the claws and the breeding, but you talk like some sort of wild thing. Maybe I am. Maybe that's a good thing. Yeah, um, literally my only other note on this whole episode is there's a bit early on, very early on actually, where they, when they first land in Cardiff, where you see like a shot of the, the Doctor and Rose lying on the floor of the TARDIS laughing and it's very post-coital. And that's all I have to say about that. <laughs> my other note is the like, what the Shakespeare thing. Oh yeah. Because I don't like that's, it. Yeah, I really Cause don't like it. When people, if people in 1869 wanted to say what the Dickens, they would have said what the Dickens because that's not where the phrase comes from. Mm-hmm. It's from like Dickens being devil. Yeah. And so the fact that like, I guess you could say like, oh, well, he says what the Shakespeare because he doesn't want to use his own name in that way. But like, it's clearly supposed to be like a cute little, oh, mm-hmm. well, this is what people used to say before Dickens was the mm-hmm. famous writer. But they have a whole thing about the etymology of the word fan meaning fanatic earlier on in the episode (laughs) so i'm like you can't have it both ways like pick one (laughs) but yeah um i it's all right it's quite good i'm quite dead (laughs) that's the extent of our discussion of the the unquiet there's there's no like immigration issue if we wanted to talk about that there is Mm. um i know some people i I think quite prominently lawrence miles the new adventures writer has criticized this episode for having a apparently having a strange even vaguely xenophobic stance mm. where the doctor makes this whole thing about what seems to be or certainly could be read as uh, a justification of allowing well specifically i suppose refugees allowing refugees in the moral kind of the moral implications of that the moral and uh, necessity of that really mm. and then those apparent immigrants then turn well Ingrids, then turn violent uh, and reveal that it was actually a nefarious plot all along. Like, I can absolutely see how that can be read as xenophobic. Like, I'm not even going to make put a gloss on that. There is something dodgy there. And I think, especially in this day and age, it's the kind of narrative that you have to be very careful about opening yourself up to those kinds of readings. Yeah. Because I, I don't think for a an instant that that's what Mark Gatiss was going for at all I think it's something he just plain didn't think of mm. and that Russell T mm. Davies didn't think mm. of and none of the executive producers Julie Gardner didn't think of and fair enough I didn't think of it until it was pointed out to me yeah. I don't know can we defend the story from that I think well Elizabeth Sandiford does a, a kind of response to it doesn't she yeah she does um, and she kind of says I, 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 I have mixed feelings about this um, so if you think you're right, just in the episode in and of itself, I think that what she says makes sense, which is she talks about, amongst other things, the fact that, you know, the doctor arguing to let them use the bodies and saying that it's the morally, well, saying that it's the right thing to do is in some way lends weight to that, even if later on they turn out to be evil. However... And this is something that I'm going to have to come back to because my reasoning behind this is extremely complicated. Okay. <laughs> um, I think in terms of the trajectory of a ser- the series as a whole and how it approaches political issues and political change, I think it is problematic. 
Um, but only within the context of the series as a whole. Within the episode itself, I think I can definitely see that it's not something that was intended or yeah. or whatever. But in terms of the way the whole thing approaches politics, I think it's symptomatic of a wider issue with the entire first series. I, th- I think I can see where you're just yeah. now, actually. Yeah. yeah, that's going to be interesting. So, I my kind of feeling about it is that, like, I think that their reasoning to let the Gelf through and use the dead bodies is absolutely correct and mm. that you have yeah. to assume that people have the best interests when yeah. you make decisions based on compassion. And I don't think that there's necessarily anything in the episode to imply that if the same circumstances happened again, that they shouldn't try and do exactly the same thing. Yeah. Because sometimes you can do the thing that is based on compassion for other people and assuming the best of other people and it backfires, but that doesn't mean that you shouldn't make that same decision Mm. countless other times on the off chance that one time out of however many it pays off and you help those people. And that's like kind of what I think. I don't think that the episode contains that message necessarily. Well, I think maybe that's the problem. I wish the episode made that case. Yeah, Mm. I suppose like if there was a little like coda to it where like they kind of discuss that then it would be a really interesting point i think probably as we've been kind of gesturing towards i think probably it just wasn't like thought through the implications of it Mm -hmm. and i think that you can take it either way and i completely would respect anybody that says that like the way that it does it is wrong and that it doesn't do enough Mm -hmm. I don't really know. Basically, it doesn't do anything that would be like counter to my ideas about this. Mm-hmm. But it also is not like a ringing endorsement of the of trying to see like the good in in people and trying to help people. But uh, my book gives this episode a ten out of ten. So is that what you <laughs> will? So it's appealing to Mark Campbell. If nobody else. Yeah, he's the he's the it's it's by some... marks for marks. Yeah. This is a very eccentric. But opinions. ten marks. <laughs> yeah, it says a beautifully made Victorian ghost story with some be- with with believable form- performances by the entire cast and some genuinely frightening moments. Gates' dialogue sparkles throughout. So okay, right there. Wow. <laughs> I mean, personally, I would say like take an average between that and like the three out of ten. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then yeah. they're both that's, like I think that's, fine. That's fair. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, I don't know. He may have modified his opinions <laughs> since then, and I believe yeah. does update. Yeah, he, his d- he does change his ratings in okay. editions. He puts up Ghostlight by like one every year. Says that he's <laughs> trying to enjoy it. But I so. think that I think that precisely the reason why this is kind of interesting to me is because it's like right. It's like mm. right what someone thought at yeah. the time. Yeah, so absolutely. I don't mean to imply that like these are his opinions to this day, but it's kind mm. of interesting to know that like at the time he was like. The Gelf, I'm on board. <laughs> I want chips. Me too. Right then, before you get me back in that box, chips it is and you can pay. So, um, we're going to take a break here and we will be back in the next part with Aliens of London, World War Three, and beyond. So, look forward to that. Thank you very much. can only be up from there. <laughs> <laughs> Bye. <laughs>